I was in complete shock and I don't remember like the next five days. Like I was totally in shock. Um, my attorneys, they tell me stories of like in the county jail, the sheriff actually let them stay with me for hours and I was crying, I can't do this, I can't do this. I'm Paul Hastings and you're listening to Compelled, a podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for him. We've been off the air for eight months and we couldn't be more excited to finally be back with another full season. If you wanna know why we've been off the air and how you can help us stay on, then stay tuned after our story and I'll give you the full scoop. This is the first episode of season two. Our guest today is Hannah Overton, a mother of five that was falsely accused of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Yet instead of growing bitter, she chose to flourish where God had placed her. That story coming up right after a word from today's sponsor. This episode of Compelled is sponsored by Patriot Academy. Patriot Academy raises up leaders with a biblical worldview that boldly champion the cause of freedom and truth through government. Patriot Academy holds intense week-long trainings at state capitals around the nation, and attendees learn about the legislative process by participating in a mock legislature, filing and debating bills and policies. All the while, they learn fundamental principles and truths. I actually attended Patriot Academy a few years ago in Texas, and it was an incredible experience. I got to sit at the same desks and debate on the same floor as actual Texas legislators. I made close friends and learned important character traits. But most importantly, I saw firsthand the desperate need we have as Christians to engage the culture and not shrink away. This summer, Patriot Academy will hold seven different academies across America, and there's a good chance one of them will be near you. Compelled listeners can receive $25 off tuition by using the promo code COMPELLED. Learn more at PatriotAcademy.com. Again, that's PatriotAcademy.com. Earlier this year, my wife and I were blessed to sit down with Hannah and listen to her share the story of how God worked mightily in her life. Hannah brought her seven-month-old daughter, Gabriella, to the interview as well, who you may hear occasionally in the background. She's a very cute baby, and I can't help but think how peaceful and happy she looked, and that she had no idea what her mother had been through. But before I get ahead of myself, let's first hear Hannah's story. Well, I was raised in a Christian family. I got saved at about three years old. And then as a young child, around eight, and we moved on to a mission space. And my mom was like a secretary for a missions organization. So I was uh, surrounded by missionaries. I lived on the state side, but I lived um, like where everybody would come to have their furloughs and things like that. And, and just was, you know, I kind of grew up sheltered in this little God bubble, Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, as a missionary kid. And so I did a lot of short-term missions growing up as a teenager and, um, and just was constantly surrounded by ministry. Hearing so many powerful stories from missionaries from around the world, Hannah was assured that God loved her and that he had wonderful plans for her life. And part of that plan included a young man named Larry. When I was about five, he stole a little bird from his mom and proposed to me. And <laughs> and so our parents tried really hard to get us together the rest of our lives because they thought it was really neat. And we really didn't want to have anything to do with each other until we went off to missionary school together, to a discipleship training school with YWAM. And 
um, we ended up getting engaged during that school and got married soon after and felt like God had called us to Corpus Christi to work with the youth in Corpus at that time. And for many years, Hannah and Larry had a happy life together. They were serving in their local church. They had several children, and they really felt like they were making a difference. And then one day, another blessing appeared. So um, we were doing youth ministry at our church, and our um, we had four kids. I was pregnant with my fifth, and our daughters were in children's church with a little boy named Andrew. And his mom was a drug addict, and his dad worked for a carnival and wasn't around um, and he had been in an abusive situation. He had been taken out of, you know, an abusive home, born addicted to multiple drugs. Oh, and, um, you know, so he had had a pretty tough life. And then he had lived in the foster system. He was praying for a forever family. And we fell in love with him. My daughters came home and said, why can't we be his forever family? And back before we had kids, we had considered at some point adopting, and that was something that we really wanted to do, but we didn't know when or how that would play out. And so anyway, when Andrew came into our lives, we decided we wanted to go ahead and pursue adoption with him and got to open the doors for that. And he soon after that, he moved into our home and became part of our forever family. Andrew was the sweetest little boy. He had um, big blue eyes and chubby cheeks, and he was starving for love. So he, any chance you got, he would just be the most cuddly one in all the family. Um, at first, he didn't know what to do. Like we'd, I'd say, be gone and come home. All the kids would come running up to give me a hug, and he'd stand back, like you know shyly looking at you like what yeah, do I do can yeah. I get a hug and when we tell him to come hug us he just got really excited and um it, it within 24 hours of coming to stay at our house he was already calling us mommy and daddy he was so proud of that yeah um uh, he'd been living with us about two weeks when my daughter um Alicia was getting into something, and I called her by her middle name. I said, Alicia Summer Overton, you know, come here. And he's like, what's my name? And he had never known his full name. Oh, wow. So even though his name hadn't officially been changed, I told him his name was, you know, Andrew Josiah Overton. And from that point on, he would go up to everybody, strangers, and introduce himself. My name is Andrew Josiah Overton. Oh, he was so proud of it. Oh, man. And he was, he was an adorable. Oh, man. Boy. And how old was he when you... Uh, Started he was fostering. he was four. He was three when we first um, got to know him, but he was four when he moved in. For Hannah and Larry, life couldn't have been better. They loved their church. They had four biological children with a fifth on the way, and now Andrew would join them as their son. Everything was perfect until it wasn't. Andrew started getting sick, and it seemed like he had um, just like a flu of some sort, like a stomach flu. <sighs> I um, I was pregnant, and he was throwing up, and I wasn't doing very well with him throwing up, so I called my husband to come home and help, and we put him in bed and, um, you know, just thought that he had a stomach flu, and then he started breathing funny, and so at that point, we said we needed to take him in, and we asked the CPS agents to meet us there at the doctor's office because we hadn't the adoption wasn't finalized so we couldn't just take him to the hospital we had sure. to have permission to do that and so we we left and went you know what we thought we were going to the urgent care and we ended up at the hospital 
We were all praying for him and, you know, just desperately, you know, praying for our baby to get better. 30 hours later, he passed away. While no one knew the cause of Andrew's death at the time, it was determined much later that Andrew had died of hypernatremia, a high concentration of sodium in the blood. A contributing factor was pica, a rare undiagnosed eating disorder Andrew had which causes victims to crave non-food substances such as dirt, paint, glue, or baking soda. Andrew had most likely found and eaten an enormous quantity of table salt, leading him to die of salt poisoning. At the time, though, Hannah knew nothing about this. What she did know, though, was that her baby boy had just died. Even worse, her family's personal tragedy was about to turn into a nightmare. When we were at the hospital, my pastor's wife was at a pastor's wife's conference in California, and she had all these um, pastor's wife stop and pray for him. And somebody sent me this scripture verse that says, um, Psalm 37, 5 and 6, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. And when she gave me the scripture, I didn't, didn't understand that scripture didn't have anything to do, in my perspective, with what was going on. Yeah. And then an hour later, somebody else came to me with that same scripture and said, God says that I need to give you this scripture. And so I read it again, and I was like, this has nothing to do with anything. I want like a scripture about my baby being healed. And then not 10 minutes after the second time that scripture was given to me, the police came and took me and began interrogating me. You know, from then on, things just rolled downhill. Specifically, the county's district attorney's office began promoting a theory to local and national media that Hannah, a pregnant mother of four children, had force-fed Andrew unheard-of amounts of Zatarain's Creole seasoning. The district attorney's office accused Hannah of killing Andrew. And it was a jury trial. It was. And at that trial, do you believe that you were in any way targeted at all? Yes. I mean, um, there was there was proof of my innocence. Um, that when we went to the urgent care center, Andrew vomited at the very first place that we went. It had, that vomit had been saved. And I had been asking for it for days and days and days, months. I'd been asking, where is that? Because I knew it would prove my story was true. You know, they were saying that I had force-fed him 23 tablespoons of Zatarain seasoning, and I knew that if they tested that, that vomit, that it would show that there was none of that in his system. And um, years later, after I had been convicted, we were able to find that they had this vomit, they had tested it, and it showed a low amount of sodium, the amount of sodium that he would have had with what I had said he had eaten for lunch. And that not only did they know this, but they hid this evidence from us, um, saying that I had made that up, that he had never thrown up in the urgent care, that there was no vomit whatsoever. Yeah, And yeah. so they had hid this in the evidence room in a, um, in a brown paper sack that said Overton Home, so that we wouldn't even think to look in that sack wow. for this vomit. Wow. Uh, along with that, there was a... Um, the top nephrologist in the world uh, that you know deals with salt poisoning cases and different things like that, and he was there at my trial wanting to testify. Had he testified, the jury would have understood that even if he had been in the room 
that the symptoms of what's going on look like a flu yeah. until the very end. And there's nothing that he could have done. You know, he, he looked me in the eye and told me, you know, I have seven kids. I'm the top nephrologist in the world. If I was there, I would have done nothing different than what you did. Yeah. You know, but he was not able to testify due to delays in the trial and then a deposition that went, that went crazy. And then, you know, there, so there were a lot of different things that made that not happen. Because a lot of what, what I was convicted of in the end was taking too long to go to the hospital, not that like that I should have done something differently. And um, the, the jury members were polled after the conviction and asked if they actually believed that I had done anything intentionally, and nobody believed that. But what they did believe was that maybe I should have gotten there quicker and yeah. moved faster. But they didn't have the whole testimony that showed that, you know, any normal mother would not have run to the hospital when their child threw up. Sure. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, that was the only symptom that he had until we did go to the hospital. And and do you have any idea as to, to why? I'm sure this is something that, you know, you and your husband have, like, thought over the years, like, why? Why why you guys? like? Well, the second chair prosecutor, um, there's a documentary made about my case, and she says this in the documentary, but that the prosecutor was um, trying to make her name for it, with this case. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I choose to believe that in the beginning that she wasn't, you know, just making this, you know, just coming at me, but that she already, once she had gotten the results from this and realized that she was wrong about her theory, that she, the ball was already rolling and she was like, but this is, you know, this has got a lot of media and this is a big case and I can make my name off of that. So she continued to go with that. Oh man. That's, you know. My way of, you know, believing that that happened, I don't know. I haven't ever spoken with her, but I know that she knew and that she continued to pursue, you know, a conviction. On September 7th, 2007, after a lengthy jury trial that stretched on for three weeks with multiple inconsistencies, distortions of truth, and national media attention, Hannah was declared guilty of capital murder. Her sentence was life in prison. Hannah and Larry were dumbfounded. What was there any point during the during the trial when you know it crossed your mind like, hey, I don't think we're gonna win. I think we're gonna lose. Like, did that cross your mind at all during the trial? You know, I, of course I was scared, but I. Uh, because probably I had been raised on a missionary base, I'd seen God step in and save the day yeah. so many times. Yeah. You know, I had watched as, you know, money was provided the day before every, you know, something was needed. And I just expected that God would come in and save the day on my time schedule. You know, the morning that I left before my, um, verdict, I didn't even, you know, I kissed my kids goodbye, but I didn't like, I didn't prepare them for that for that I might not come home. I didn't, you know, I didn't expect that I wasn't going to come home. I had, you know, a eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a seven-month-old. Yeah. That I was left, that I left at home with my husband. The decision was immediately devastating. Hannah had entered the courtroom a free woman, fully expecting to be declared not guilty but instead was escorted away, handcuffed as a convicted murderer. Larry would have to tell their children what had happened to mom. He stared out of a window for a few hours and the kids were with my pastor. And then he was like, I need to go 
home and tell them and he just told them that some people believed some lies about me and that I had to go to jail until we could prove the truth. Hannah was immediately sent to county jail and locked away in solitary confinement. Because of the nature of her conviction, she could never have physical contact with her children ever again. God had abandoned her. Or had he? As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. I was in complete shock and I don't remember like the next five days. Like I was totally in shock. Um, my attorneys came to the um, police station with me and they, you know, they tell me stories of like in the county jail, the sheriff actually let them stay with me for hours and I was crying, I can't do this, I can't do this. A few weeks later, there was a point when I was, I was very, very depressed. You know, as we spoke about a little bit earlier, you know, I had thought God was going to come in and save the day and he didn't do that in my you know, my perspective, God had failed. Yeah. And I, I was trying to figure out how God could love me and allow this to happen to me. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I was in solitary confinement because of all the media for the first five and a half months. And I was, so I was alone. I was only allowed out of my cell to shower in the middle of the night. 
And I, I was very, very depressed. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. Um, every time I would try to go to sleep, I would have nightmares that I couldn't get to my kids and they were hurting. And um, so the nightmares were even worse than it was when I was awake, so I was scared to go to sleep. Because in my dreams, they would be like drowning in a car and I couldn't get to them or whatever, you know, different things like that. Yeah. And um, anyway, I I had come to a point where I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. And I was planning to call my husband to tell him, like, because I, I, I got a phone call every so often in the middle of the night when I could call him and talk to him for a few minutes. And I was going to call him to tell him that... I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And I was getting sicker. And I, my plan was, I wasn't telling him I was going to kill myself, but I was telling him I was going to die of a broken heart. So I called him, or I went to try to call him. And um, little did I know that earlier that day, um, God is so cool, because my son was trying to go to sleep, and he was crying. My oldest, he's eight, and he was crying. He was telling his daddy, I can't do this. I can't do this. And how can I live without my mama? And um, Larry left him, and he said, he said, can you just read this right now? Read your Bible for a minute, and, and I'll be right back. And he left because he didn't know what to say. He was completely overwhelmed by that question, and he went to the garage and cried. And when he went back in, Isaac was not crying anymore. He was, he was smiling, and he, he, he said, Daddy, Daddy, look. And he opened up his Bible that Larry had told him to read for a minute. And he says, it says right here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in that childhood faith, you know, he, he read that, he believed that, and he, he said, we can do this. Yeah. And he said, you need to tell Mama, when she calls, tell her that the Bible says we can do all things. And so when I called, ready to tell Larry that I was going to, you know, die of a broken heart, he, before I got that out, he was able to tell me that story about how, you know, God says <laughs> in his word, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wow. And, you know, that helped carry us through. It became clear that God was ready to meet Hannah every step of the way. Whenever she needed him most, he was there. I was throwing a fit one day. I was, um, you know, just telling God how unfair it was. You know, how, you know, how can you say you love me and I'm in this prison and I need, my babies need me, my husband needs me, I need to be home. I, you know, and, and. I, in the midst of this fit, I wore myself out crying, and and I, the last thing that I said to God was, I can't even see the flowers, and I fell asleep. Well, God loved me so much that even in the midst of that fit, where I'm telling him he doesn't love me, he he heard that, and I... Um, a friend of mine woke up in the middle of the night with this intense desire to get me flowers. And she tells her husband, I've got to go get her flowers. And he's like, you can't. She's in the county jail. You can't get her flowers. She's like, no, I have to. I don't know how, what I'm going to do with it, but I have to. And after a bit of an argument, she finally she got up and went to the grocery store and bought flowers and went to the county jail and was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these, God, but I feel like you told me to buy flowers. And she put them in the no parking sign. And little did she know, I was on the sixth floor, but when I looked out my window, that's what I could see, that my little bit of the real world that I could see was that no parking sign. And I looked down the next morning at those flowers. You know, it's like, you know, now I look back and, you know, it makes me want to cry that God bought me flowers at the time. Yeah. I was still a bit of a brat in the mood I was in, feeling abandoned by God. And I was like, that's not funny, God. 
After almost half a year in solitary confinement in county jail, Hannah was transferred to a maximum security prison where she was introduced to another world. So there's metal and concrete everywhere. It smelled horrible because they don't have shampoo, don't have deodorant unless they have money, and then you've got 115 degree weather in the summer. Yeah, so it smelled really bad in there. When I first walked in the door, um, I was met by a pretty scary woman, and she was screaming out fresh meat, and she ended up being in the bed next to me and proceeded to scare me half to death for the next couple of weeks. And, you know, my very first night, I watched someone get into a fight and was sent to the hospital, you know, blood everywhere. The unit that I was on has dorms of 102 women in each dorm. So there's, um, you know, the dorm that I was in, there were 102 women, there were four lines of beds. So there's, you know, 25, you know, rows of 25 beds, 102 altogether. And then there's, you know, seven toilets and seven showers and everybody shares all that. And, uh, you know, an officer there all the time watching to make sure that everything is okay or to at times, you know, yell and scream and tear up everything or, you know, you never know what the officer's going to do. Um, there's, uh, you're only allowed to have a, a two by two box of belongings. So everything you own has to fit in this two by two box. That means if you get pictures sent in from the kids, they have to fit in that box. If you want conditioner, they have to, it has to fit in that box. Um, so you provide your own toilet trees. You you do. Um, we the state of Texas provides five bars of lice soap, one roll of toilet paper, and some tooth powder, which is like uh, baking soda in a cone cup, and a toothbrush and a black comb. And that's if you want anything more. If you want deodorant, if you want shampoo, things like that, you have to have money to purchase them from through their commissary. So. Um, if you don't have money, then you don't have those things. And um, I, I luckily was, you know, one of the blessed ones that did have money to have those things. And um, is, is theft a thing that happens in prison or is that? Yes. Yes. Theft happens a lot um, on a regular basis. Um, what's an interesting thing for me, it's been my experience, and I've spoken to quite a few other people that have been in this system and... Um, what you, what you don't realize is that theft usually happens with the, some of the smaller cases, you know, the cases that people would think where it'd be, you know, they say it's like a nonviolent you know, drug offense, you know, not a big deal. Those are the people that you're more worried about actually stealing stuff from you or, or fighting or, you know, the people that have a bigger charge, you know, I, I could sleep better with a murderer next to me. Because a murderer isn't going to wake up one day and they, like they didn't just decide to kill somebody that day and they're just going to kill people every day. That's usually their circumstances that led to that and it was a one-time offense and it'll never happen again. Whereas somebody like with a drug addiction, that's an addiction and they continue to um, act out on those in those behaviors. And so when we would have a drug person, a dr person with a drug addiction next to us, often we would have to deal with theft and things like that. Wow, wow. Um, being in prison, was was violence a common occurrence also in the maximum security prison? Yes, it was. Um, I've heard it's a whole lot worse in the men's prisons, of course, because you know men often tend to be more violent than women, but it was a daily occurrence. You did deal with 
of violence. Um, there, you got to realize too that there's you've got 102 women stuck in this little bitty room with um, in the summer there's no air conditioning it's like 115 degrees in that dorm um, they are you know they're away from their loved ones they're in a, they're out of their comfort zone they're 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 they get very frustrated with each other and so yeah. that's why there's it tends to end up there tends you know to be violence there. And what percentage of the women would you say uh, were there for life or had a life sentence? On the unit that I was on, I would say maybe maybe thirty percent. What was your communication with your oh, family? About at that once point? a month, my husband would bring the kids up for a two-hour visit through bulletproof glass. Um, he came every weekend. Uh, the church helped pay for gas and watch the kids and all kinds of stuff, so that he could come. And he came every weekend, and we we had contact visits. So we would sit at the at opposite sides of a table, but we could hold hands. Um, but because my case involved a child, I couldn't have that with the children. So I had to see them through bulletproof glass, and I would, he brought them up once a month. Slowly, Hannah began to adjust to her new life in prison. So over the next few months, as I began to heal and I began to... Um, you know, to get used to life in prison and what the day-to-day was going to be like. I felt like God was saying to me that in His hands, I had a big purpose. And He had a purpose for what He was doing. And I needed to trust Him. I, I might not understand His plan, but I needed to trust His heart. There was this lady, and at the time, she was uh, the head of the Wiccan circle, and she was in prison. In prison, the Wiccan circle, the Wiccan circle, and she was very, very scary, very, you know, dangerous. And um, she, I was put in a job where she was supposed to train me, and she was very angry with me because I kept crying. And she's like, "You can't cry in prison," you know. Except she didn't say it that nicely, but <laughs> so she kept, you know, she kept yelling at me for, you know being a crybaby. And finally, one day she said to me, she, she said, you need to get over this and you need to realize that this is your home. And I was like, this will never be my home. And she said, no, no, this is your home. And she said, now you say that you believe in God, right? I said, yeah. She's like, so if your God is so powerful, then he's got some purpose for you being here or he wouldn't have put you here. So either you believe in him or you don't. Is this your home or not? And I was mad at her. I was like, how could you say that to me? Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is not my home. And so I, you know, I, I went back to the um, to my dorm after work and I was, you know, telling God all about how this wasn't fair. And uh, and I opened up my Bible and in Acts, there's a place in Acts that says that God decides exactly when and where you are to live. And I opened it up to that scripture, and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, God. Yeah. You know, and, and it was like God was telling me, you know, I, I am in control, and I did decide exactly when and where you were to live. Yeah. And you have to give in and realize that this is, this is my plan for you right now, and there's a purpose. And so at that point, I repented for being so upset. And I was like, I don't know that I can ever call this home God, but I, I, I understand that you have me here and that there's a reason for you having me here. So um, I began to like get to know some of the people more. And a couple of my friends um, were just really, really hurting. And um, I realized that I had a hope that they didn't. And I began to tell them about that hope 
than I had. And as I began to tell them about that hope, I I started asked my pastor's wife to send in a Bible study. And you know, at first I was leading all the studies, and then I it got to be too many that I couldn't do that. And we could inside the prison, you can only get together in groups of four. If anything more than that can be considered inciting a riot, and so we couldn't, you know, I, I would do four, uh, four here, do a Bible study with four people here, and then four people there, and then I got to where I didn't have enough time to do all of that, and so other people were doing the studies. I asked Hannah if she struggled with bitterness or forgiveness towards the prosecutors who sent her to prison. She replied with a very unexpected story. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Aka tribe in Ecuador, but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing. And their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for Compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. 
And trust me, if you love listening to Stories Uncompelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. There was somebody that was had decided that she was mad at me and she was planning to kill me. And um, the, pro- the reason she was upset was because I was doing Bible study with her girlfriend and she thought I was going to tell her girlfriend that she needed to break up with her because she was in a homosexual relationship and she wanted to fix that by killing me. <laughs> so she had this plan. And in the process that I found out about the plan and that and some of my friends surrounded me and protected me and told her that she would you know she wouldn't get away with it basically and um in the end she was uh found with a uh, with a weapon and she was taken to to seg and what is what is seg segregation she was put uh into solitary confinement got it but in the process of all that happening I was looking around at all the women in the dorm and everybody was so excited by all this drama. You know, like, it, it, I mean, I, I was, my life was in danger and they were excited about all the drama of the situation. And even my friends that were trying to protect me, they were still like hyped up by the drama. And I, in looking around, I, I asked God, I was like, I don't want to be like these people. How do I not end up like this? Um, so after she was removed, I, w- I was, you know, quietly laying in my bed and asking God, you know, how do I not be like these people? And, and I felt like God told me that I needed to forgive and that, you know, it was bitterness that led to these people being like that. And um, I felt like he had laid on my heart to write a letter of forgiveness to somebody that was involved in my prosecution. And um, I was like, oh, I don't want to do it, <laughs> you know, because I didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't want to forgive. And so I, I kept feeling like God was laying this on my heart. You need to write this letter of forgiveness. You need to write this letter of forgiveness. And I, um, so I wrote this letter. And in the letter, I, I told the lady that I was choosing to forgive her. But what I was doing was I was putting her case in a higher court. So the higher court, God, will decide what to do with you, and I'm out of it at this point. And then I told her, I said, so now that I have placed your case in a higher court, I have given your case to God, it is up to him what happens to you now. And he knows your heart, and he knows why you did what you did, and he can decide what happens from here, but I'm going to stay out of it. And um, at, at that, at the same, and along those same lines, I want you to know that just like Joseph said in Genesis, you know, you did to his brothers, you meant evil from this. God meant something good. Yeah. And I I quoted that scripture to her and I told her some good things that God was doing out of it. I told her stories of people's lives that had been changed. And I told her, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that God has good plans for this. And so I forgive you. And I wrote the letter, and I put it in in the envelope, and I stuck it in the back of my box, the box that you keep everything in, because I didn't really want to send it. And God kept tugging at my heart. I, I told you to send this letter. I'm like, no, that's all right. I don't want to send yeah. the letter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote it. I, I obeyed. That's yeah. good enough. You know? And he, after a while, you know, I felt like he kept bugging me about it. So I get it back out and I go to get ready to send it. I ended up tearing it up because oh. I really didn't want to send yeah. this letter. And so yeah. then I wrote it again. And during the time when I was doing this, all, uh, all of this fighting with God about writing the letter, things were changing in the office where she was, and she ended up getting a promotion. And so I thought, well, there's no way that she'll get this letter 
from me now because they're not going to give her a letter from a convicted felon. So I sent it (laughs) thinking it would never get to her. And it did. It did get to her desk. And then she showed up at my pastor's office in tears because God used it to change her life. And she's now a Christian. She's leading Bible studies in the courthouse. And, uh, you know, God used that not only to change her life, but to change my life. Because from that point, I saw what forgiveness yeah. could do. Yeah. And I saw, you know, that he had, he had a purpose for asking me to do that. And I was able to, like, that started the process of me being able to let go and forgive the other people that played a part in putting me in this situation. And in case you were wondering what happened to the inmate that had tried killing Hannah. So the the lady that was trying to kill me because of her girlfriend getting it, it, doing the Bible study, about six months later, she was brought back into the dorm. And I was really scared when I saw that she was coming into the dorm. And not only was she coming into the dorm, she was going to be put in the bed directly across from me. Oh, great. And I I was really scared. So I'm like sitting on my floor in, in my little cubicle area where my bed is, and I'm crying. And I'm like, oh, what are we going to do? And my friends are all around. They're like, it's okay okay, we'll take care of it. We'll get her out of the dorm. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you. And, um, she comes in and she puts her stuff down and she came to the edge of the cubicle and she, she said, can I talk to you? And I was like, uh, sure. (laughs) And she said, no, come here, come here. Can I talk to you? And and I was really scared to go over there, but I did. And I, I went to over by where she was. And she said, um, she said, while I was gone, I started reading my Bible and I became a Christian. Would you be willing to do Bible study with me? Wow. And I didn't know what to do, whether to believe her. I I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do the Bible study with me with you as long as we can do it like in the middle of the day room, right in front of the cameras, you know. And I started I started doing the Bible study with her, and she continued to grow in the Lord. And she's now at a completely different unit. She has a life sentence, and she's. Um, you know, will spend the rest of her life in prison, but she's at another unit and leading Bible studies. And I I get letters from people that she's led to the Lord now in this process. So God had an amazing plan in her life as well. Was there ever a point when um, you regretted trying to foster Andrew? There wasn't. um, Our time with him was so sweet. I would never give that up. Now there, I can't say that there's not times when I'm like, you know, why didn't I do things differently? Why didn't I, you know, there's really nothing I could have done differently. God had a plan and he had a purpose for that plan and he's used it for his glory and he's going to continue to. I asked Hannah if she ever became resigned to the fact that she would be in prison for the rest of her life. Well, I never thought I would be there the rest of my life. You know, that scripture that I talked about earlier, I felt like God gave me that promise and he gave it to me before I even knew that I would be, you know, accused of anything. Yeah. And then throughout the years prior to my trial, after my trial and letters, people that had no clue of that story that I had just told you kept sending me that scripture. Really? And so like God just kept reiterating that promise to me. And I did believe that God would prove my innocence. I had no clue how long that would be, if that would be two years, 20 years, but I did believe that he would eventually prove my innocence. Just like Hannah wrote to the woman from her prosecution, what others had meant for evil, God had used for good. Several years passed and Hannah's appeals case had many developments. A doctor that treated Andrew the night he was brought to the hospital stepped forward to provide crucial testimony. 
The original district attorney from Hannah's case had left office and a new one was elected. The physical bag of evidence that Hannah mentioned earlier in this story was found and it proved her innocence. Hannah's church family had never stopped praying and serving Larry and her children and had sacrificially raised thousands of dollars for her defense. Then at the end of 2014, the news came. After seven years, Hannah Overton, who had been falsely accused of murder and sentenced to life in prison, was going to be released in 40 days. So for 40 days, I, I was in the maximum security prison and just waiting for my release. And it was interesting now looking back on it because every day of those 40 days, I, I was excited to go home to my family, but I also, I cried every day because of the ladies I was leaving behind and the love that God had given me for them. Yeah. And they were grieving as if I was dying because they... Everyone that leaves usually forgets them, and they thought they'd never, ever see me again. Yeah. Describe the emotions that you felt when the, the most recent district attorney finally exonerated you. What went through your mind? Well, I mean, it's a relief that you can't really explain. Um, it was a very emotional day. I More emotional than I really thought it would be. I had yeah. to go back to the courtroom where I was convicted. And uh, another exoneree came with me, uh, Michael Morton. I don't know if you ever heard yeah. of him. He, Michael Morton was exonerated of killing his wife. He's also a fellow believer, and he came along with me because he knew how this, how hard this process can be. So we go into the court or to the courthouse, and we have to go through the metal detectors and go up the same elevator. The last time I went up that elevator. I didn't leave out that elevator because I was convicted and I was taken to the jail. And so as I'm going up the elevator, he's telling me, it's, there's, he says, there's one thing I know, we're both going to be going home today free, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it, but it's scary. It, the whole process was scary, you know, and then they said the, you know, the state of Texas versus Hannah Ruth Overton and, and, uh, you know, the last time I heard those words, it was not a good thing, you know, but then the, the judge actually teared up when she was, you know, signing my paperwork and she told me, you know, congratulations and I was finally free and actually proved innocent and not, you know, with no more fear of being retried or anything like that. Yeah. Wow. So um, that was really neat. You know, of course, getting to hug my kids for the first time in seven years. For the and, first time. Yes. Including your daughter who had been seven months old when you had left her. Yes. After seven years in prison, seven years of separation from her family, seven years of countless prayers, and seven years of ministry to fellow prisoners, Hannah Overton was finally free. But her ministry was only beginning. Today, Hannah and Larry lead a Christian ministry to prisoners they founded called Sendeo Ministries. As Hannah explains it, Sendeo is a Greek word meaning bound in chains, such as a prisoner to another prisoner, but it also means bound, connected in heart, as all believers should be. Through Sendeo Ministries, Hannah and her husband Larry speak at numerous events each year, sharing how God has worked in their lives. They create and distribute Bible studies to hundreds of incarcerated women, and this summer they'll provide water bottles and cooling towels to 8,000 ladies in prison. Also, volunteers are helping Sendeo build a bunkhouse that will eventually be home to 25 women transitioning out of incarceration. Last question for you. I know that uh, before we began recording, we were talking about your daughter, Gabriella, 
and she has a very special role that she plays. Can you just kind of tell us what makes Gabriella so special? Yes. So obviously I was taken away from my kids when they were very young, uh, Emma being seven months old and still nursing at the time. And every birthday I cried my eyes out, you know, every, every time something happened that I missed, you know, and obviously I can't replace the years that I missed with them. Yeah. But um, I did always want to have another baby. And when I first got out, I had two miscarriages and I was told by doctors I would not be able to, mm. that my body had been too messed up by too much stress and that I would not be able to carry another baby mm. to term and that it wasn't possible. But God had different plans and he gave us this miracle. And she's been very healing for all of us. And um, it's really neat to be able to be a part of things that... Um, I may have missed with the other kids and just to watch them love her and she's spoiled, <laughs> but she's definitely a very healing thing for us. And as I said earlier, her name means God gave me strength and God answered our prayers. Yeah. Yeah. And her, her, her full name is? Gabriella Elena Overton. So Elena is spelled a little bit different. It's Hebrew and it's A-L-I-A-N-A and it means God answered our prayers. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for just coming and sharing with us your story. Um, I just really appreciate your testimony. Also, I, you know, for those that are listening, they can't see your contagious joy, but I think they can hear it. And as you've just been speaking and sharing with us for the last you know, couple hours here, I mean, you have just had a smile and this demeanor, you know, that I know for myself, I think if I'd been through what you've been through, oh, I mean, I, I know for a fact I would just, you know, be full of like remorse and bitterness and you know, all these things. And it's by the grace of God. It's not Amen. me. Um, you know, on my own, I think I would be in a psych ward. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, it's definitely God that has carried us. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you. Our guest today is Hannah Overton. You can find more at sindeoministries.com. Hannah's story is a profound reminder that God is near us and with us no matter where we may be that God is still God no matter what our circumstances are, and that God has a plan and he will never forget us. The verse Hannah quoted earlier puts it well. Psalm 37, five, six, and the first part of seven say, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. To learn more about Hannah and her ministry or to volunteer, visit her website sindeoministries.com that's s-y-n-d-e-o ministries.com you can also visit our website compelledpodcast.com and look for this episode to find additional information in the show notes we'll include links to hannah's website in-depth articles with more details about hannah's journey a documentary and photos you can find all of that at compelledpodcast.com So if you've been wondering for the last eight months why Compelled has been off the air, it's because our editor, the amazing Zach Fowler, and I have been working our day jobs. What most of you may not know is that every episode in season one took around 30 hours to create. The underlying interview we record with the guest is anywhere between two to four hours, and then it's heavily edited. Uh, we do multiple rounds of edits. We send it to test listeners, get their feedback, make adjustments, export the master file, listen to it again for more errors, etc. cetera. Uh, you get the idea. And that's not to mention the time that we spend coordinating the interviews, researching the guests and crafting questions, traveling for the interviews, making graphics, posting on social media, and more. I mean, it, it just takes time. We launched season one, though, last year as an experiment. 
We wanted to know if Christians would enjoy listening to real-life stories of God changing people's lives. And if you haven't listened to season one already, then go back and check it out on our website, compelledpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you'll hear some pretty amazing stories uh, from an abortion clinic owner, an NFL Super Bowl champion, a drug dealer, a missionary, pastors, parents, 15 stories in all. One listener wrote us saying, there are few things more powerful than the true testimonies of real-life Christians who have been willing to surrender all to God. And Compel brings those stories to a place where they can be heard and shared. And another listener wrote us saying, hearing about real-life tragedy and triumph through following Christ and the hope that he gives through all of it keeps me in a state of contentment, thankfulness, and in peace. And that's really the heart behind the podcast. We wanted to share meaningful stories that showcase God's redemptive work in people's lives. And because of some generous donors, we're now back with season two. Uh, We've collected more powerful stories, and we're producing them with even higher quality and production value than from our first season. And we're making and releasing 15 more episodes, one episode a week starting today. And if you've been encouraged or blessed by these stories and want to keep hearing more, here are a couple ways that you can help us. The first way is to join Compelled Podcast as a member. And that's right. As of today, we now have a membership program just for our listeners. There are different membership levels starting at $10 a month. And one of the benefits includes getting to listen to the behind the scenes recordings from our interviews. So if there was a guest you really enjoyed listening to, there's a really good chance we actually have up to two hours of interview time with them. And you can listen to the full interview and hear all kinds of stories that we didn't have time to include in our regular podcast. A great example is today's episode with Hannah. We only aired about half of our conversation because of time constraints. So if you enjoyed today's episode, then as a compelled member, you'll have access to my entire conversation with her, which includes more of her stories and experiences. We're still thinking of more membership benefits to add, but the biggest benefit of being a monthly member is that you're allowing Compelled to continue sharing these important stories. You can become a member by visiting compelledpodcast.com and clicking the link that says become a member. The second way that you can support Compelled is by sharing this episode with your friends. Hannah has a powerful story of trusting God and it needs to be told. Please consider sharing this episode on social media and writing something personal about why you were encouraged or email it to someone you know who would be blessed. Our show was edited by Zach Fowler. Find him online at zachfowlerimagery.com. Our logo was designed by Josiah Jost. You can view his work at sciadesign.com. Our website was created by Ben Billups. You can follow Ben on Instagram at ben.billups. And our media intern is Frank Allegrea. You can find him on Twitter at thefrankallegrea. Our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Ficino. And our assistant producer is none other than my lovely wife, Sarah Hastings. Our guest next week is Ryan Dobson, the son of Dr. James Dobson. And although Ryan grew up in a loving Christian household, he faced many struggles, including divorce, depression, and even doubt over whether God was actually real. You'll hear that story next week. But for now, head over to compelledpodcast.com and join as a monthly member and then share today's story with your friends. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. 
It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.